Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew in chapter 26, reading verses 14 to 16. So may the uh, people of God delight in uh, hearing uh, the word of the Lord. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Pray. Amen. It's very important, I think, that we recover some of something of the simplicity of, of the division of mankind. I mean, I know there are many nations and tongues and tribes and peoples thousands of desires, wants, expectations, professions. But in the greatest of all things, there are but two types of people in the world. Just two. There are traitors and there are loyalists to the anointed king in his kingdom. Think about it. This morning we will look at an archetypical event of the greatest traitor of all times. He flashes across the scene of redemptive history. Engages an event that is so evil that Jesus will say of him, it's better that that man had never been born. Behind it all, there's the fact of loyalists, those that are loyal to king and kingdom. And so this morning I'd like to look at the path that uh, traitors take on their road to ruin. And then look, of, of course, of uh, the cure that loyalists have from ever becoming traitors, standing in league with uh, those who are arch enemies of king and kingdom. The betrayal here this morning is that of an individual failure that begins in the heart, as all matters do. We, when we think of spiritual failure, it's always a matter of the heart. Our man, interestingly enough, as you know, Judas is one of the twelve. He had a very lofty position. He was the treasurer of the apostolic company. It's noteworthy to me that he is within the visible assembly of the people of God. And again, that marks out something of the dangers that oftentimes we, we think the enemy is over there. Well, sometimes he's within the very uh, uh, company that we keep. I'm saying that's always uh, the case. I'm not trying to promote cynicism, uh, but it is instructive uh, that this act of this greatest of all traitors is within the company of the apostles. Uh, that means, of course, that he's a temporary follower. Uh, and that is an individual choice. People come sometime from a follower of Jesus that something happens in their lives and they leave off following. That's what's going to happen to Judas. That's a traitorous act. Leave off following Jesus. Because kings are meant to be followed and obeyed and kept and preserved and honored and adored. 
his path to ruin is one step at a time until he aligns himself with evil. Uh, we minimize everything in our culture. The Bible does not. Uh, Luke chapter 22 in the third verse has these terrible words. Satan entered into Judas. And there comes a point in time, I mean, I understand that two kingdoms clashing in the world in which we live, just two, kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness, uh, but in some intense way, even though we always belong to the kingdom of darkness, in some intense way, uh, Satan entered into his heart. Something of the provenance of, of, uh, of traitors. They aligned themselves with the prince of evil. Absent Christ is the protector of the soul. Men have no defense against the powers of darkness. Now, the good news of the gospel is that Christ seals us to protect us. We've talked about this previously, but it's worthy to be reminded as the people of God, sometimes we think we're a bit better than the unwashed uh, or perhaps a bit smarter than those who don't have our theological understanding. All that's folly. Uh, we are kept by the power of God from being traitors. That's the only thing that stands between us and absolute ruin. It's the power of God uh, to which we recline. Uh, and the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and the 13th verse that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. That sealing is the ultimate protector. I'm always reminded at work, you know, do you have this protection on your computer? And then all of a sudden you realize you need to update the protection because there's a new virus. Uh, and always having to update. I mean, if you're a Christian, you don't have to update anything. The eternal spirit of God seals you from ruin and from becoming a traitor. It's a great illustration of this in uh, the book of the Revelation, 7th chapter. Uh, understand there's different eschatological views. Uh, my view is the end time judgments, end time salvation, eternal life has begun. But there are angels that are set to go uh, wreak havoc upon the earth. There's another angel of which John says he has the seal of the living God. He tells the other forces, don't go harm the earth until I go seal the bondservants of the living God to protect them. What a great promise. Redemptive history. God dispatches his forces to seal his people. Of course, we can be harmed physically. Of course, we're going to die barring the coming of Christ. But we are truly protected by the power of God from betraying king and kingdom because God seals us. That's the only difference between us and traitors. Only difference. I think it's best perhaps seen in the office of Christ described by Peter in his first epistle, second chapter, in the 25th verse. He says that Christ is the shepherd 
and bishop of our souls. The word bishop can also be translated guardian. If you think about it, of course, it's the entire triune God that's sent to protect us. The Father elects us from eternity past. Uh, the Son is dispatched to become the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And then the Spirit seals us. That every aspect of our salvation is linked to the Trinity. All acting in incredible unison to secure us from acts like Judas. I might remind you that there are thousands of shepherds in the world. Thousands. But there's only one who can protect the soul. And that is Jesus Christ. It is an implicit call to the gospel, is it not, to come to Christ? Who alone is qualified? Who is alone uh, blessed by God the Father to protect and to win, to guard the soul? Our problem is we give our hearts to everything, every whim, every emotion. Uh, but again, the summons of the scriptures, give your heart to Jesus Christ, who alone is the bishop of the soul. It's a great illustration of this in uh, the uh, letter to the Hebrews. As you know, there's a great struggle uh, of which that letter is an attempt to interdict people from defecting to faith, from joining the ranks of Judas. The sixth chapter, the 19th verse, he speaks of Christ who goes into the Holy of Holies, intercede on behalf of his people to win for them their eternal redemption. And then he says, the author says of that hope, it is an anchor for the soul. Now I will tell you I'm not much of a mariner. I've never been a sailor. But I know a little bit about ships. I know they have anchors. I know that they need anchors on occasion. And depending on the size of the ship is the size of the anchor. You and I are little ships in a big storm. Christ is a great anchor of the soul. He holds us from winds and tides that are meant to drive us, uh, to shipwreck us. By the way, the author to small, uh, uh, smallest uh, epistle, New Testament, Jude talks about men who have come into the church who are reefs to shipwreck our faith. Sometimes we think every church is a safe place. I beg to differ. Simply read the epistle. Men have come into the church who represent profound danger, and they come with an explicit, defined, committed purpose, and that is to shipwreck our souls. Only God can keep us, and Christ is the only anchor to hold us. Again, there are thousands of shepherds in the world, but only one saves and protects the soul. Ultimately, of course, there are only two shepherds. There are two classes of people, traitors and loyalists. And they are so because of those who shepherd their souls. Only two shepherds. It is, I think, worthy uh, to be reminded of uh, the reality of uh, the description that the Apostle Paul 
gives to Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. One of the reasons we give attention to biblical exposition and teaching is so that we can be wise to discern the difference between Satan as an angel of light who comes into the church to destroy it, to gather all who are in league with Judas. An angel of light. Incredible reminder of how important wisdom is in biblical training and learning and exposition and instruction. But really, it, isn't it just the ancient story of the serpent in the Garden of Eden? Isn't the serpent always present? seeking to deceive, to trick, to misuse the Scripture, to cause people to follow Him instead of the great shepherd of the sheep. It's a reminder that the serpent is always present and absent a good shepherd, men are and will follow Him into the dark side like Judas. It's the importance of the Gospel. Christ is the only Redeemer. He is the only High Priest accepted by God. Every other priest will fail. There is only one priest who can enter into the Holy of Holies and render a sacrifice of infinite value to save uh, the people of God forever. Uh, certainly it is worthy to be reminded of our duty in such an enterprise. Uh, great words of uh, Solomon, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. I don't know when Judas sold out. I don't have to know. I simply know it's a process one step at a time. But I'm struck by the scriptures that Satan entered his heart. That's tough stuff. Uh, but it marks Judas as a traitor our reminder to keep the heart with all diligence. In our culture, we seemingly keep everything else. Keep our applications up to date. We keep our resumes up to date. Keep the heart. We're out of it. The issues of life in this great drama of traitors and loyalists the betrayal, of course, is unique, I think, uh, because it is, uh, at its heart, a theological uh, issue. It's a theological failure. That in and of itself is quite surprising in our culture because, quite frankly, we don't study theology. Uh, we don't care about it. Uh, we only want to engage in practical matters in the life of the church and spiritual matters, and all of those things are important. I'm not mindful that spiritual matters Spiritual affairs are important, so are practical matters. You get your water turned off, it, it, it affects things, doesn't it? And we have to give attention to those things. But, uh, but the failure of Judas is a remarkable theological failure. The proximity of the anointing by Mary is something of a turning point in his life. I think that's uh, why these events are back-to-back -to, -back to one another. This great act of, of uh, Mary and her love and devotion to Christ and then the perfidy of Judas. 
Mary is brilliant because she understood what was important in life. Judas is disturbed by her act because uh, of what it meant. Uh, The anointing of Christ for his burial was uh, an act that engaged uh, a severe cost. It's a monetary value there, and he was the treasurer. So you know where his heart is. Again, she turns to Christ in love and he turns away. There's no question that greed was part of it. I mean, he, he wished that Nard had been sold and the money deposited with him uh, so that he could abscond uh, with some of it. But uh, we make greed in our country an art form. But it meant for him, I think, something that's decisive, and that is that the earthly kingdom that so many in Israel were hoping for was not going to occur. That is the theological failure. We need to remember that the nation wanted Messiah to come, destroy Rome, and elevate them. And that's a pretty good deal. But that's not uh, the reason that Messiah came. Maybe the reason he comes the second time, but the reason he came the first time is to cure a spiritual failure. And so the failure of Judas was an eschatological failure. The kingdom has a progressive fulfillment. Phase one is the spiritual reality of the new birth and the sanctification of the soul. The physical reality of anointed king reigning and ruling is phase two. And that's not yet in redemptive history. Phase two is the stage of eternal glory when the kingdom becomes visible and absolute. But you cannot invert or really separate the two. And that, to me, that is his failure. He wants the physical first. He wants Christ to defeat Rome and elevate Israel. He wants to have an important part in that because Jesus has told him that he would have such a part. Again, he's inverted the order. He forgets the spiritual. He forgets the fact that the chief trouble of man's heart is that he's a sinner and in desperate need of a savior. He flunks the eschatological reality, the coming of Christ in phase one and phase two. I think this is something of the failure of the health and wealth movement. Claim all the promises of God and he'll heal you from everything and make you rich. That's a pretty good deal, you know, if it works out that way, but it doesn't work out that way, does it? And some people want their stuff now. That's what Judas wanted. He wanted his stuff now. It is true that Christ, of course, will heal us of all of our diseases, but it may not be now. Sometimes he chooses to heal, sometimes he chooses not to, but in eternity, All of our diseases will be healed, to be sure. All of us will be indescribably wealthy. At heart, it's an over-realized eschatology. He wants eternity now. While eternity has begun in spiritual life, uh, the ultimate benefits of a glorified body awaits the second coming. We will be rich and made whole, but Not yet. And so we're to be faithful to king and kingdom until he grants us 
eternal glory. By the way, there's a good application there. I sometimes uh, struggle over events like this in my own life, but I know uh, sometimes the followers of Christ uh, do as well. Be careful about making God the object of your carnal expectations. And when he doesn't deliver, you check out and leave and quit. At heart, that's parallel to what Judas does. You and I are called to walk by faith and not by sight. Sometimes what we see is incredibly distressing and discouraging and upsetting and the cause of great anxiety, but God is our keeper. We're to walk by faith and not by sight. So there's an individual failure here at the heart. There's a theological failure, misunderstanding of eschatology and uh, the way that uh, God works. But betrayal is also rooted in one's relationship or lack thereof that God is shepherd. We know this in our text this morning from the reference to the 30 pieces of silver. I mean, how'd that figure come up? Fairly precise. I'm going to pay Judas 30 pieces of silver. Well, if you have your Old Testaments, and I trust you do, I ask you to turn to Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 12. Because the text is an allusion to uh, that chapter and that verse. I told them, the eye is Zechariah, if you think it best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. It's, uh, it's also used, uh, book of Exodus, chapter 21, verse 32, uh, the price uh, to be paid the owner of a slave who's been uh, gored by an ox. Meaning that uh, they had a pretty low value on who Christ was. Think of it, the price of a slave that had been gored. That's their estimation of the value of Christ. It's a great verse in uh, the Meyer prophets, Micah, who, who uh, excoriates the people for bringing disqualified sacrifices to the worship of God. I mean, again, the priests were to qualify the sacrifices. I mean, he couldn't bring a a uh, spotted lamb or a lame lamb. But that's how we do it, isn't it? It cheapens uh, our understanding of the greatness of God, our understanding of the majesty of forgiveness. Uh, but that's what people sometimes do. That's what's occurring in a measure here. Christ is only worth 30 pieces. It's enough to sway Judas. And so he takes the bait. But the context of uh, Zechariah is uh, uh, really the story of why Israel failed in his day, of why they're going to fail in the day of Jesus, and why we fail today. The first three verses of the chapter are one of devastation of the nation, followed by how they got there. Again, incredible spiritual ruin, and then how they came by that ruin. So how did they come by that ruin? 
Well, they had a good start. They chose Zechariah to be a good shepherd. And so he comes as a good shepherd with two staffs that he calls them grace and unity. In uh, discharging his duty as a good shepherd, he dismisses some bad shepherds. And that's always a troublesome thing, and it causes an uproar. And so Zechariah abandons them to the consequences of rejection. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 11 in, uh, in verses 7 to 9. So I pastured the flock, marked for slaughter, particularly the oppressed of the flock. Then I took two staffs and called one favor or grace and the other union, and I pastured the flock. In one month, I got rid of three shepherds. In other words, they were disqualified. I don't really know who they were. Maybe they were a bad prophet, a bad priest, and maybe a bad king. They were spiritually appointed by God to rule, and they are disqualified, so he dismisses bad shepherds. I think about that a lot when we appoint people over us in the life of some churches who have uh, alternative lifestyles. But we think it's a good thing. The Bible says otherwise, but... That's no big deal, is it? Well, it is a big deal. Here there's an uproar. The flock deserted me. Zechariah says, again, this is the shepherd appointed by God and the flock deserts him. I grew weary of them and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and let the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. In other words, he simply walks away. They don't want him and so he leaves. So he comes and he sues for his laborers and they give him 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11, 12. He breaks his first staff, grace. The symbolism there is incredible. He breaks the staff of the grace of God. You and I are desperately dependent every day of our waking lives upon the grace of God for everything. The air we breathe, the food we eat, and spiritual protection. He withdraws it from the people of God, meaning that ruin awaits them and the favor of the Lord is withdrawn. His final act is to ask for his wages. Again, as I've stated earlier, it's their estimation of their value of him in his work. Then symbolically, Zechariah cuts his second staff, meaning there will be no unity with God. And they embrace false shepherds that are ruinous to the soul. And that's a telling act. And that's really ultimately where traitors are born. Bad shepherds. Bad shepherds make bad sheep, and bad sheep don't make the cut. But that's what they want. Zechariah is a type of Christ. So there was an immediate failure of their discharge of Zechariah in his day. And now there is a greater fulfillment than the days of Christ. They don't want a good shepherd. They want bad shepherds. And that's what they're going to get. And there is even a continuing fulfillment in our own day. Because we too discharge sometimes the shepherds that God appoints over us for false shepherds. Christ now, of course, is the greater shepherd of the sheep appointed to the Lord, but Israel rejects him. It's exactly what's occurring in the chief priests 
the scribes and the Pharisees. They want Christ dead. So they're rejecting the great shepherd of the sheep. They did not esteem his work, and so God gives them what they want. It's a remarkable act of irony. You want folly? I'll give you folly. Let's look at verses 15 and 16, Zechariah chapter 11. Then the Lord said to me, Take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd. God appoints good shepherds, but he also appoints foolish shepherds. That's a great irony, isn't it? You don't want good shepherds? He'll give you bad shepherds. He appoints Zechariah to fulfill the role of a foolish shepherd. For I'm going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their heads. Pardon me, their hoofs. And you see what's occurring there. You don't want the shepherd appointed by God? God gives you bad shepherds. The last verse is a poem describing the shepherds they will get. Verse 17, Woe to the worthless shepherd who desert the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. May his arm be completely withered, his right eye totally blinded. It's the picture of a shepherd totally unable to call, keep, and defend the flock. But that's what the people want. They want a foolish shepherd who's not equipped to defend the flock. They want a shepherd who doesn't have the strength to fight off the enemies, the wolves, and the bears that will ultimately come. Then I hearken back to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when Paul warns the Ephesian elders, I remind you that from among your own selves, in other words, the, the, the company of the elders, men will arise like wolves coming into the assembly, destroying the sheep. A shepherd who has one arm in a sling, a patch over an eye, doesn't have full use of all of his senses, cannot defend the flock. I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually. But that's what the people want. They don't want a qualified shepherd. They want a foolish shepherd, and so that's what God gives them. And so the nation will suffer loss. Now, what's the loss? Well, cataclysmic. Luke chapter 19, verse 41 to 44. The great shepherd of the sheep is going to Jerusalem. As he approached the city, Luke says he wept over it. If you even you had only known on the day and what it would bring, it would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Roman soldiers will come and destroy the city, Titus, the Roman legions, act of judgment. They rejected the good shepherd, they're going to get a bad shepherd. Rome. Destroy them. Spare nothing.
think there's a continuing fulfillment of this sad event in the life of the church, isn't there? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. Isn't that the story of Judas? 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah chapter 11. Who wants the truth? Tell us a good story. Tell us a few jokes. Make us laugh. Make us smile. Simply the reduplication that repeats itself. Something of a conceptual allusion here, I think, to Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, when uh, Daniel tells of uh, this man Antiochus will come and establish lawlessness among the people of God. He says, he will speak to you smooth words. Uh, the word smooth words can literally be translated soft words. I have a saying. Soft words make soft people. And soft people are easily turned. It's one of the reasons I think the great doctrines of the grace of God are so essential to the life of the church because they humble us, they break us, they make us dependent, and they teach us that God alone is worthy of our every affection, and to God alone be the glory. We don't like those doctrines because they say things like our will is under the bondage of sin. We have no hope save Christ. Every other shepherd will lead you to total ruin. Who wants to hear that today? So we turn aside our ears to myths and folly. We become a soft people, and again, soft people are easily turned. That's the point of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. That people will leave off good shepherds for those who will tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. Let's just have a focused group. and What is it you want to hear, sister? What is it you want to hear, brother? Get everybody's idea and we'll do it just that way so everybody will be happy. Again, understand that the church is a great body of people. Fellowship is important. All those things perhaps have something of a role, but God appoints the shepherds of the flock. Be very careful about the shepherds you follow. Traders are born and raised by the shepherds they keep. Remember reading one point in John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Oh, you don't want elders to rule over you? <laughs> well, I, don't, I understand that sentiment. We don't want anyone to rule over us, but spiritually, elders under shepherds, under the great shepherd of the flock. You don't want elders, and Calvin cuts to the chase and says, really what you want is Satan to rule over your soul. And that's decisively true. Who wants to be under constituted authority in the life of the church? Well, I, most people reject that. And so what do they get? They get Satan. Satan enters their heart. 
Again, it's just simply the simplicity of uh, bad shepherds make traitors. And traitors will not fare well. And so Jesus says of Judas, better had that man never been born. It's a reminder that uh, there are two classes of people in the world, traitors and loyalists. And there are two, ultimately, only two shepherds in life and in death, Christ or the devil. I understand it sounds quite simple, but that's the reality of the text. Satan entered Judas and carried him off as the arch traitor all time. Well, the good news, of course, is that betrayal has a cure. First and foremost, it's in a sovereign God who keeps his people in the truth. Uh, this story is played out for us in an illustrative way in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus, as you know, is delivering a discourse on the bread of life. People wanted bread. They wanted to be fed. As long as he was doing his miracles and, and creating bread, they'd hang around. But he turns it into a teaching opportunity of the importance of faith and eating and drinking him. And so a good number of them turn away. John chapter 6 66 verse, from this time many of his disciples, notice they were followers to a point, but now they turned back and no longer followed him. They didn't like the point of the discourse, so they turn away. There are traitors and there are loyalists. Jesus says, the twelve, you don't want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. How did Peter achieve such incredible wisdom? Well, Jesus is going to tell us in verse 70, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Peter was theologically brilliant because he was the elect of God. And even Judas was the arch enemy of the faith because he too was the elect of God, elect to do evil as a traitor. God had chosen all of the twelve against this great reminder that we owe our faith, we owe our perseverance, we owe our continuance, we owe everything to the doctrine of election, that God set his affections upon us in eternity past. Peter passes the course in a moment, and yet Jesus humbles him by telling him he did so because God had elected him, and marked him out to be spiritually blessed. I mean, it's another picture of this is to as to why so many turned away in 65th verse. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. 
It's this incredible doctrine of election, of total inability. And yet for the believer, for the loyalist to the cause, God enables us to be loyal, and that's why we're loyal. And apart from his enablement, at some point we'd hear a sermon and we'd check out and fire the shepherd. And that happens every Sunday and every day of the week. People hear the sermon and leave off to find another shepherd who was blind, maimed, and untaught and illiterate. It's a great reminder of how blessed we are, the elect of God, enabled by God. God draws us unto himself. John 6, 44. No man can come unto me except the Father draw him. Yes, we have come to Jesus. We have believed upon him. And how did we do that? Spiritually, mystically, we were drawn by the grace of God. He put it within our hearts. Satan entered the heart of Judas. The Spirit enters our hearts and draws us to Christ to acknowledge him as the Holy One of Israel, the great Messiah before whom we bow. Traitors and loyalists tied to the shepherds they keep. I understand it's difficult stuff, but such is the truth of John chapter 6. Secondly, of course, it's our reminders I've been attempting to bring to you that Jesus is the good shepherd. Uh, that discourse is as you know, John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is a grand allusion to Ezekiel chapter 34. I don't have time to read the entire chapter, but there's a great diatribe in Ezekiel 34 of God inveighing against false shepherds of the flock of God. I reminder to be very careful because there are false shepherds. They abound. And sometimes people want them because they want to turn away their ears from the truth and believe in fables. Ezekiel chapter 34. Simply going to read a couple of verses, verses 10 to 12. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths. It will no longer be food for them. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep and I will rescue them. Here's this great prophecy of Ezekiel. Jesus stands and preaches John chapter 10, the discourse on the good shepherd, meaning he is that shepherd, now standing in their presence, fulfilling Ezekiel 34. That God promises to provide a qualified shepherd, and Christ is that shepherd. Prophetic fulfillment in Christ. Again, I've been attempting to say that there are two types of people in the world, traitors and loyalists, because there are two shepherds in the world, the good shepherd and all the rest. And only 
The good shepherd will keep his sheep and preserve them and keep them and protect them and seal them from becoming traitors. Again, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 28. Prophetic fulfillment. The good shepherd. In terms of the life of this church, he appoints under shepherds, but it's the good shepherd. It's the ultimate determiner of the traitor or the loyalist. If you're not a Christian, you're in a bad way. If you're playing around with all this new doctrine that comes in and out of the church, all the fads, I will tell you, you're in a serious way. The true shepherd of the flock brings nothing new. There is nothing new in redemptive history. There is nothing new in terms of doctrine. We make an art form about coming up with new stuff in the life of the church. It is a dangerous way. It makes traitors to the cause. And you and I are called to be loyalists. But start with the shepherd, the good shepherd of the sheep, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Place your hope and faith in him because outside of him, the world is a howling wilderness and eventually the wolves will run you to ground and destroy your soul. Happen not only in time, but will happen forever in eternity. Again, traitors and loyalists are defined by their shepherds. If you're a Christian, you know the good shepherd. Never stop praising him, obeying him, keeping him, preserving him, confessing your sin if you need to so do. Never stop following him in the word that he gives to us as his constituted authority in Holy Scripture. Keep and preserve it because it's part of the work of the good shepherd to so turn your hearts If you're not a Christian, again, come to Christ because he is the only shepherd from spiritual ruin and betrayal. It's, it's the path of the world. I know it's somewhat simplistic, and I don't mean to be guilty of, of reductionism, but it is biblical. Two classes of men, two shepherds. I'm thankful that on any given Sunday, morning at Grace Bible Church. God's sheep come to hear his voice, to love him, to sing praises to him, to fellowship with him in the sacraments, to follow him in his word. It's a great act. It occurs because God chose us to do such. And therefore, as the sheep of God, we ought to be distinctly humble and dependent. And so our shepherd makes us. I'm thankful this morning that we come and we have the promise that he protects and preserves and seals our souls throughout all of time. That of all of the sheep of the world, he loses none that belong to him. What a great reminder of the gospel. Come to Christ. Every other sheep will wander away from the fold and be lost. Christ loses none. The good shepherd. Let us continue throughout all of the days of our existence to praise and to worship him, to give him what is his due, worth and honor and glory. And may that be our mark that we belong to the loyalists of the great king and his true kingdom.